Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined for today's episode of the Meta Hour by Janice Martorano. Janice is the founder and executive director of the Institute for Mindful Leadership, a nonprofit organization dedicated to training and supporting leaders in the exploration of mindfulness and its impact on the cultivation of leadership excellence. She founded the Institute in January 2011 after ending her 15-year tenure as vice president public responsibility, and deputy general counsel for General Mills, Inc. Janice's work has been featured in the BBC, New York Times, and Time Magazine, just to name a few. And she's the author of the international best-selling book, Finding the Space to Lead, A Practical Guide to Mindful Leadership. And Janice and I are going to get the opportunity to co-lead a program, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. So welcome, Janice. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy to to speak to you. Um, I thought maybe we could start with you just describing a little bit about your background and this incredible path that you forged. You were a very early person bringing mindfulness into the corporate world, uh, maybe the earliest almost, and um, you've really spearheaded the work of mindful leadership. Okay, so... My journey in mindful leadership actually began all the way back in the year 2000. And at that time, I was, like most of us, a 21st century juggler. And so the balls in the air for me at that point was I was a a new vice president. I was the mom of two school-aged children, married. I was the daughter of aging parents. And I was the president of a nonprofit in the Twin Cities. So I had a lot of balls in the air. And most days, they pretty much stayed up in the air. But it was a lot of fast juggling. And then one day, um, I would get a call from our CEO who told me that General Mills, which was a company I was working for, uh, was going to acquire another company, equal-sized also in the Twin Cities, called Pillsbury. And that would become not just another ball to juggle, but because of a lot of complexity, um, the details of which don't really matter uh, for our conversation, uh, it would turn into to a nightmare, just a nightmare deal that required me to be working seven days a week, 12-hour days, sent my children away with my husband for vacation twice without me because I couldn't get away horrible, horrible period of time professionally, 18 months. But more than that, in that same 18 months, I would end up losing both of my parents. They would both die six months apart. And so in that span, it was just this concentration of just horrible things happening. But I did what most executives do, what most professionals do. We play hurt. We keep going because that's what we have to do. Except at the end of that, when the deal was done and I had a little bit more time, a tiny bit more open um, time, I became profoundly aware that I had lost something in that 18 months. And later, as I started to learn more about neuroscience and resiliency, I would learn from some of my friends who are neuroscientists um, that you can reach a point of so such depletion that your ability to bounce back becomes really, really difficult. And I think I had reached that point even though I didn't know it at the time. So I was still doing my juggling act, going back to my juggling act, but now it all felt very different to me. And um, a friend of mine sent me a link one day to a place in Arizona, and his view was what you need to do now, because I'd lost a lot of weight, I wasn't sleeping well, and um, he said what you need to do is go to a spa. (laughs) And I I thought, oh, okay, well, but at that point in my life, I'd never been to a spa. 
And uh, and I had just sent my family away on vacation twice without me. So the idea that I'm going to go home and tell my wonderful husband and my two young kids, Mom's going on vacation without you for a week, that wasn't likely to happen. So that was, no, I'm not going to a spa. But he was very insistent, and he sent me a link one morning. And I remember Sharon opening up this link, and I had not slept well, and I was still kind of groggy looking for my caffeine fix. Mm-hmm. And I opened the link, and here were these pictures, just Gorgeous pictures, Sedona Mountains. You felt better just looking at the picture, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But still, I'm not going on a spa because I can't take that time away. But there was a little special program, and it was called The Power of Mindfulness, Mm. an, an intensive retreat for executives. And I thought, well, maybe if it's intensive, it's okay to go on a retreat. Mm. So that's the mind of a crazy executive person. Right. Anyway, um, I would go on that. It was being run by John Kabat-Zinn. Mm-hmm. I spent six days, 6.30 in the morning till 9 at night. It felt a whole lot like hitting a brick wall those first few days. And I can tell you that that first, very first session, that first day, when he told this group of 13 people that, okay, we're going to be sitting and practicing for 45 minutes, I remember thinking at that time, we're going to sit for 45 minutes and do what? Are you kidding? I'm going to go crazy. I can't sit for 45 minutes and just do what? It didn't make sense. You know, and I was, oh, I don't know. This is not going to work. And I will also tell you the last day when I was carrying my little meditation cushion out to the edge of the desert where we do early morning practice, <laughs> and it was going to be an hour, and all that was in my head was it'll never be enough. It'll never be long enough. Mm. So in those six days, something happened. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and what would happen is I would then go back, and now I had no one around me. As you pointed out, mindfulness in the business world was non-existent. Mm-hmm. Mindful leadership hadn't hadn't even put those words together yet, and it didn't exist anywhere else. And it would be a few years of really practicing with a few different people. In fact, you were one of my earliest people, and unbeknownst mm-hmm. to you, because I was listening to your tapes. Oh, how funny! Kind of correspondence course yeah, uh, yeah, format yeah. that you and Joseph did. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I then would find several other teachers, um, live and not live, uh, to um, work with, mm-hmm. le- learn mm-hmm. from. I also studied with some neurologists and spoke with them and interviewed them and started to read about the neuroscience around all of this. And it would be many years later, really four years later, before I started to put together the threads that I'd been involved with for most of my life, the leadership development threads, with the contemplative practice threads. Mm. And then so began the very first mindful leadership curriculum. and I taught that first um, to a group of officers and directors at General Mills. Five years later, by the time I left, more than 700 General Mills employees had been taught mindful leadership curriculum. That's fantastic. So I'm, I'm very curious about your first approach to whomever you had to approach to, to begin that teaching. Somehow, in the last week, I've had several conversations with different people about uh you know, in the old days when mindfulness was so much less regarded or, you know, the research was just beginning. I mean, it's still kind of just beginning, but, you know, it was really in, in the elementary stages. And, you know, so many people who were professionals of some kind uh, working in the corporate world or they were therapists or they were teachers or uh, doctors or something, if you had a, a meditation practice, you didn't usually go around telling people that, you know. This was right. actually something you kept quiet about, um, you know, and so uh, now I'm imagining that first approach when you went into, I don't know if it was peers or, or people you were reporting to, and, and you said, I want to do a class on mindfulness. Well, even worse than that, because I'm a very strong proponent because I knew where I had come from at that moment. I knew many of my colleagues, these people I, I cared a great deal about, and I had no intention of teaching mindful leadership. I still have these moments of how did this happen? Mm-hmm. This is not in the career plan. Yeah. But um, but it be- got to a point where I felt I could no longer not 
share because it had made such an extraordinary impact in my ability, what I felt was my ability to lead as well as my life in general, but specifically to my ability to lead. So what happened was I started to just randomly, literally randomly, I would be seeing uh, a colleague of mine in the hallway and I'd stop them and we'd be chatting and I said, you know, let me ask you, I have been doing this and I've been doing it for the last few years and um, would you be interested in learning something about this because it really has an extraordinary impact on leadership development. And that was how I began speaking about it. And what I got in return, Sharon, was really quite surprising to me because these are folks who, right, never heard of mindfulness, mm-hmm. certainly never heard of mindful leadership. We were, as a company, always touted as one of the best in the world for developing leaders. So we had access to some of the best leadership development in the world, literally. Um, so... I'm coming and talking about this thing they never heard of, and what I heard in response were people would say to me, oh, that's what's been so different about you. Mm. That's what, and they would tell me, well, when you were in this, that's why that happened, or that's what. So unbeknownst to me, I felt different about how I was leading, but interesting to me was they noticed something different, and so and something so significantly different that they were willing to take the first leap off the cliff, which it really was, because it wasn't an hour or even a day. I was inviting them to go on a full five-day retreat. Mm. So that was really, and then now we go, and now we come back, and people are saying to them, so what is that thing you did with Janice? (laughs) We're gone. You know, what were you doing? And they didn't know how to describe it, but all they said was, I can't even tell you what we did, but you have to go do it. Next time she offers that, go do it. (laughs) And that's how it began. And then, of course, great leaders always want for the people that work for them to share what has been helpful to them. And so they did what I assumed they would do, which is two weeks after that first retreat, one of the VPs came to my office and said, I want everyone in my division to hear this and to learn from you. Um, so I can't send them away for five days. What else have you got? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the second uh, curriculum, using the same kinds of mindful communication and leadership excellence reflections, all the core pieces of the curriculum was now put into a seven-week, and now not just for directors and officers, but for people at all levels. So that's how it began. So listening to you, I have, I'm starting to... Um almost form an image of, of what I might call great leadership. And I'm wondering what you what qualities or attributes you're you're associating with the term great leadership, which which you used just a little bit ago. Yeah. Um so leadership mindful leadership is actually a very defined term the way that we use it, the way that I use it and the way we use it here at the Institute. So it really has, so the definition is a mindful leader embodies leadership presence by cultivating four fundamentals, focus, clarity, creativity, and compassion in the service of others. So if I take that definition apart, it's both inspirational and instructional. So inspirational because if you decide to be on a mindful leadership journey where this is becoming part of who you are, you'll be on it for the rest of your life. It's not some tool that you master and now you've got it. Mm-hmm. Instructional, because it's not enough to say embodying leadership presence, which is something that is felt. Leadership presence is something that is felt. Well, how do I do that? Well, you do it by cultivating what I call those four fundamentals. Focus, the ability to aim and sustain attention. Clarity, the ability to see what is here, hear what is here, not what we want to be here, not what we thought would be, not what was here last year, but what's actually here. Creativity, that spaciousness for innovation that the mind needs, and then compassion, Mm. deep understanding. So those four fundamentals, and never forgetting that we're all in this together, that connectivity, which is why in the service of others, we don't teach mindful leadership to enhance personal greed. We 
teach it to develop the kind of excellence we need, especially today. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and do you see that applying to, say, anybody in a company, whatever their position is, as they grow and change as a human being? Absolutely. In fact, if we look at the the very heart or the core of what is a leader, leadership is about influence. At its very most basic piece, it's about influence. A leader influences. And if you think of it that way, every single one of us, every day, for better or worse, has an influence, Mm -hmm. for better or worse. So we can influence the choices we make about our lives. We influence people in our family. We influence the environment. We have an influence in our workplace, for better or worse. So one way to think about mindful leadership training is that we are cultivating our capacity to more often influence for better and less often Mm -hmm. influence for worse. And everybody has the capacity to cultivate leadership excellence. I think what just popped into my mind right now is this time that um, uh, I called a, a customer complaint line mm-hmm. for some problem I was having with something, and uh, it was not a really good experience. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of culminated in, in my feeling... Uh, misunderstood, <laughs> very strongly misunderstood. And not too long after that, I was teaching, and uh, someone in, in this class um, happened to work at a different company but at a customer complaint line, and, and she was, like, absolutely radiant. And, and she was saying, you know, I love my job. And she said, I can't always help people, but I'm honest and I'm always responsive. And by the time they've talked to me, they've – already talked to two or three people and they're completely freaked out, but, you know, I'm really there for them. And I thought, that's different, you know? I mean, she changes someone's life for the better probably every time she talks to them uh, just because of her kindness, you know, and her her sense of respect and regard compared to, you know, having somebody feeling like lower than low when they get off the phone with you. Um, So every encounter in a way, affect so many other people. Yes. And that's a beautiful example because oftentimes people will say, well, you teach mindful leadership. I'm not really a leader. Well, a leader is what we just talked about, what you're just describing, influencing. That person on the other end of the phone influences and has an absolute ripple effect Mm -hmm. on customers, on the health of the organization, on the colleagues, for better or worse, both in both cases. One for worse, one for better. Um, And it makes a difference. It really does make a difference. And when you talk about the folks who we are really trying to to support, the kind of leadership, the development of the kind of leadership that is going to ultimately cultivate the capacity to make choices that uh, I call the win-win-win, the choices that are good for the company, good for the employees, and good for the big picture. And the big picture can be defined many, many ways, of course, in in different circumstances. But when we have that spaciousness to actually bring our best self to a moment of choice, we have the better chance of being a leader for better where we're going to make that choice that's a win-win-win, as opposed to something that we're really not paying attention to or something, well, we'll just do it the old way or we're just, I'm just going to get rid of this person on the line because I have 10 other people on the line. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, what do I have to do to get rid of her? Um, as opposed to all the ways that we can use our creativity to make the better choices, the choices that ultimately are the win-win-win and the ripple effect that comes from each one of those, even when they seem small. I'm so glad you used the word spaciousness. I know that you and I, uh, of course, have had the chance to lead one retreat together. And in addition, we've been on a couple of panels together. And I was trying to remember which one. Um, But uh, in one of the panels, somebody used a term like space or spaciousness or I don't think it was spaciousness, but it was some like hippie term or, or so other people thought, you know, and they got challenged. On, on using the word, and you interjected, and you talked about 
um, the title of your book, Finding the Space to Lead, and how uh, maybe the the cry coming up from more and more people is, I need some space. I just need to think this through. You know, I, I can't have such a cluttered mind. I need some space in order to get another angle on this or whatever it is. And it, it was this beautiful explication of of the concept of space and why we need it. Space, uh, the title of the book was actually in in honor of those earliest people who were willing to take that leap and, and study mindful leadership even when they didn't know what it was. Because what came out of those earliest years of developing this curriculum was something that was true for me and I was hearing it in the people that I was sharing mindful leadership training with. And that was this feeling that was prevalent among very, from all ways you would look at this person from the outside, these were successful people. They were directors, they were officers, they were doing a good job, they were at a very, uh, you know, a company that's thought of as a good company. And here I was hearing again and again a question or a sentiment that came up for me as well as in the earliest times and even as I was teaching, uh, which is you'd finish a project or you'd, or you'd solve some problem or you'd get something going on the right path, discovering something new or innovative, and so project is over. And everyone around you is telling you, it was great. You did a great job. And yet leader after leader was saying, and I certainly could relate to this, that there was always this nagging feeling that it really wasn't as good as it could have been. It could have been more creative, more compassionate. It could have been more whatever, fill in the blank. So I started to ask people about that, and I started to use it in my own practice as a reflection. What do you need? What is missing? Now, typically if you ask leaders, what do you need to do a better job, the typical business answers you get are things like, I need a bigger budget, I need more resources, I need more people, I need better direction, all those things. And I heard none of that. What I heard from people who are on this journey was, I just need some more space. Mm. I just need space. And the reason they needed space is because there was none. And so how can you get to that win-win-win if, there, if the best you can do in any one day is get something off the to-do list mm-hmm. or put out that fire. And we start to train ourselves to put out fires. And, and even when the urgent takes over the important. And so we constantly put out fires, even though the urgent may not be what's important. It's really wonderful. Um, one of the things I... Um, <clears throat> One of the things I admire so much about your work uh, is that it's so grounded in values. Um, you know, and certainly some of the pushback these days about mindfulness and the popularization of mindfulness has to do with seeing it as just this kind of dry um, mental training that uh, is moreless. It's just floating, you know, um, which of course it's it's really not. And one of the first skills you talk about in the path of mindful leadership is connection, both to oneself, to another, and to larger groups and systems. And I think that says a lot, that that this is really at the core. It absolutely is. And that connectivity is at such risk in the society today and has been getting worse and worse when we have substituted real human interaction with 140 characters or, Mm -hmm. you know, texts and uh, all these shortcut ways. And it's not as though we don't need technology. We love technology in lots of ways. It's really important and it has improved our lives. But on the human connection, that is something that um, it can't be substituted for. And what happens when we are not cultivating that, and we see it with Young, younger generations now, when they get to the workplace, struggle with collaborative uh, projects. They struggle with 
knowing how to have the kind of social interactions that you need to have that kind of we used to call it you know the the old fashioned networking uh one of the the most interesting wake up moments for me was I was still working at General Mills and I stopped at this intersection between two of the big buildings that are on the campus and it's a place that's just filled with people particularly at the top of the hour so like the the meeting ended at 10 o'clock and now everybody's going to the next meeting or back to their offices and so the hallways are just crowded and I growing up as a leader you know decades ago now Mm -hmm. in my earliest years used to remember having wonderful hallway conversations it was a great place for networking for learning you know you'd walk somebody to their office and say hey let me let me run this by you or what did you think about that and all kinds of learning was taking place in the hallway but in this moment which was toward the just before i actually left to come and start the nonprofit i was standing there and watching and it was silent no one was speaking, and even if they were walking with someone, they were both texting or checking their emails. So it was virtually silent in the hallways, and I thought, what a terrible loss. Mm-hmm. Um, because these moments, even if they were five minutes, they were rich minutes. They were times when you can begin to form communications and connections that really were important. And I wonder what takes the place of that today and if nothing has how we compensate for that kind of loss well individually i can't remember the statistic now and it's probably changing anyway but um some vast number of people in america who've been responding to you know to surveys and uh bits of research describing themselves as lonely yeah you know whether they're in a relationship or not and i think that uh some of the greatest indicators of happiness at work are, first of all, a sense of meaning, um, which may not be in the job description. It may be something you invest through wanting to have that compassionate conversation, for example, um, and having friends where you work. Yes. Some sense of uh, being part of a team or togetherness or connection. It seems very important. And it really is something that I'm hearing more and more of people. That's one of the things that they really enjoy, even if we're just doing a Mm one-day training, that what happens in there when we actually ask people, the first one of the first things we ask them to experiment with is turn off your phone. Not just put it on silent, but actually turn it off Mm -hmm. and put it away. And at first, people have this look on their face. Many of them have this look of panic. What do you mean turn it off? You know, it's like everyone knows you're in this room for the day, so they'll come get you mm-hmm. if there's an emergency. Um, and we usually tell people ahead of time to make sure who, whoever you need to tell that they know where you are if it's an emergency. Um, and yet by the end of the day, often, very often, part of the comments we get are how people felt something different that, oh, you know, I work with these people all the time, but today I felt just in this day, I worked with them for five years, but today I feel like I actually know who they are. Mm. Because we're not doing those little connections. And there is something important that's lost. Not not only as you point out that loneliness, that's really a crushing thing, but even from a business perspective, things are being lost. Mm Mm-hmm. So of these four um, qualities or skills that you emphasize, it's focus, creativity, clarity, and compassion. Is that right? That's right. So let's talk about compassion a little bit. Um, okay. Because, you know, as I teach so much about compassion and, and compassion for oneself being really a sign of strength, not being a sign of weakness and not being lazy, um, and it Compassion for oneself being the the foundation for then having compassion for others. So both when I talk about compassion for oneself and compassion for others, uh, there are bound to be some people in the room who are kind of squeamish about that. You know, that means I'm going to lose my edge. I'm not going to have a sense of excellence. I'm going to lose my drive. Um, 
And and I always say, well, it's an experiment, you know, take a look. Because uh, if, in fact, we live in an interdependent universe, which we do, then what's the more natural response to recognizing our lives all have something to do with one another? Um, is it having a sense of isolation and uh, kind of it's a dog-eat-dog world? Or is it a sense of of compassion and uh, community in a different way. and uh, But it's not easy. You know, I think it, it's very antithetical to the conditioning many people have. I think that's right. And, and I still, and I'm wondering when the day will come when I don't get this question, but I all, almost always when people are, you know, interviewing me for an article or something like that, I get these questions about, well, it's a soft skill. Right. <laughs> Passion is a soft skill. Or mindfulness is a soft skill. There's nothing soft about it. And so if we stick with compassion, what I have found helpful to frame this in terms that help people understand that it's it's not a soft skill and that, in fact, it's a critical skill to develop is to speak about compassion as a deep understanding. What we're really inviting here is a deep understanding. And oftentimes when we have opened ourselves to to that possibility to more deeply understand someone or a group of people or ourselves, that what we often notice with it is a pull toward an act of kindness, an invitation to do something that's maybe different Mm -hmm. or outside of what we normally do. So it can be something as simple as, you know, most people are sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so sometimes it's as simple as, well, if we're quieting ourselves for a few moments and attending to our bodies, we might notice that even when I just get up in the morning, I'm exhausted. Before I even move, I'm exhausted. Uh, And then I feel like even when I just get up out of, I just slept and I'm never quite rested. And it might, if we're if we're willing to turn toward them and say, "What is that? Is there a conscious choice I need to make here that is kindness toward myself, so that I can take better care?" And it could be something as simple as, "I need to say no more often. Mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. to go to sleep a half an hour earlier, and experiment with that, and see if that makes a difference." So, in the self-compassion world, when we talk about compassion in that way. That can also go right to when can you be your best performer? When you're sleep deprived, when you're tired, or when you're more rested and you really are at your best? When are you going to make those best choices? Um, and so as an example, I think when it can, ha- it can be helpful to turn it into things like Uh, talking about it that way and experiencing it that way, not only the self-compassion, but you can do examples like that that go right to things that are really important right now, like unconscious bias Mm -hmm. and how important it is for leaders to understand their own. And that's not a soft skill, and that takes a lot of courage to look at your own biases Mm -hmm. and be willing to turn toward them and explore them and and, you know, it's not to beat yourself up about them, but to learn about yourself, deep understand, deeply understand. Well, that's what I think is, is part of the, the dynamic around compassion is that uh, people mistake it for uh, something kind of sloppy, you know, like, uh, but I think it, it goes hand in hand with resilience and, and learning and uh, making progress in some arena that you want to you want to be better at you know that just the nature of life is such that nothing is really a straight shot you know that okay. we're always kind of doing course adjustments or we fall down and we need to get up again or let someone else help us up or we have some great aspiration and we forget about it we lose sight of it and we need to be reminded and we're always kind of beginning again and beginning again and um, that brings me to uh, one more topic I wanted to ask you about, which is burnout, um, because I know that uh, you know there, there's a lot of more emphasis these days on empathy training, which I think is a really great thing because this can certainly be a cold and cruel world for many people, and 
the more people have empathy for one another, the better off we are. But I also do a lot of work, I'm sure you do too, with people who are, I guess what society would call caregivers. You know, they're um, taking care of others, either personally in their life, their family, or, or professionally. You know, they're almost on the front lines of suffering in different organizations and trying to make this a better world. And a lot of people like that are burning out, and it's not from a lack of empathy. Um, they have tremendous empathy, but there's some other kind of balance that is missing, and maybe it, it's uh, at least in part, maybe in a large part, what you were just talking about, the um, the inability to say no or to have clearer boundaries or uh, to consider ourselves as well as others. Uh, because in the end, if we burn out, we can't continue so readily actually doing the work we want to do. And so it, it's not like being self-centered or um, self-preoccupied. It's actually wisdom to think, well, how do I shift things here so that I, I can really go on in a better way? Right. And it's really a difficult thing to do because when you are caring for someone, whether you're in the healthcare professional or you're personally caring for someone, they need you. And there's that pull that this person depends on me, this person doesn't have anyone else, or this person, you know, we're talking life and death things here. And, and it is very, very easy to slip into that, you just play hurt, like I was talking about earlier. It, you know, you just suck it up and you drink another cup of coffee and you mm -hmm. tuck all your emotions away, and, or you try to, and, um, and you think that's what you just have to do. And the problem is that we can't sustain it. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it would be something if you said, today, I need to do this. So I just have to, you know, this one day. But for those folks, and for many people in many kinds of situations, because it's not just caregivers who fall into this this trap, mm -hmm. because many leaders think of the most, let me back up here a little bit, I think that, well, it has been my experience that the very, very best leaders, and I have the privilege of working with many of them for the last dozen years, the very best leaders, the people who are people who have bright minds and warm hearts, and they exist at every level in an organization. I'm not talking about, you know, people's titles. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere in an organization, but the best leaders are that kind of person. Well, that kind of person with bright mind and a big heart uh, also are the same people who, if they put themselves anywhere on a to-do list, if it's even there, it's at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And we kind of are raised that way, like take a lot of us. So we're raised in that kind of culture of take care of people and, you know, put others first. And, you know, that's what we do. And there's a lot about that that's lovely because from some of that comes the ability for empathy and for a willingness to be open-hearted and to put yourself out there. But I once had someone say to me, and this really put the light on for me, which was, well, if all these other people are in our, our world circle. Everyone's in the world circle. I mean, that's what I, I like to think of it that way. It's kind of like one big, huge world circle, mm -hmm. and we're all in the circle. Well, why would you not be in the circle? Mm -hmm. and, and when we kind of think about that, it's like, well, if everyone else should be treated with respect, why are you not treating yourself with self-respect? Mm -hmm. And and so sometimes we need to just stop and kind of take those pieces and say it's really not only important for how well you'll do with others, it's important for you to see that you're not different from everyone else. And if everyone else needs respect and everyone else needs love and everyone else needs care, you do too. Um, and that's not something that's often talked about in the development of leadership. But it is something that when I open the door, when my other instructors here open the door to that, people jump in there with two feet. That's They're fabulous. very interested in having that conversation. That's really great. And then I just want to um, ask, uh, one of the arenas that you're exploring now within the Mindful Leadership Program 
is working with divisiveness. Is that what you were referring to when you also when you talked about seeing unconscious bias and things like that? Well, the divisiveness that exists now, I mean, for me personally, I can remember no other time in my lifetime mm-hmm. where I have felt the society so divided and and that the there's a growing tolerance for intolerance. And and I think that has seeped into organizations. So when we work with organizations, we're hearing it from leaders mm-hmm. saying, I don't know how to deal with this polarization that's finding its way in. So it was hard enough to lead before, and now, now we have this. Mm-hmm. And people get so hooked by this polarization that's in society today and don't really know why some of the outrageous things that are going on are going on. And so trying to see, and I, so I get the question often, I'm sure you do as well, how does this practice help us mm-hmm. with this? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people individually, I certainly felt for a while that I was just getting hooked every night. The news was just like, mm-hmm. just hook, line, and sinker. I was getting caught up in it. My whole body would react to it, all emotions. It was. It would make it hard for me to go to sleep at night. I'd listen to the news, mm-hmm. and it would be horrible. So I had to get. I had to get to my own practice around this. I'm like, okay, something has to change here. Yeah, yeah. What's happening? Um, and so I have, in response to hearing it from others, and in my own practice, um, have had to look at what's going on and how does this practice help us um, meet what's here and try to begin to heal some of this divisiveness um, for ourselves and for people around us in our workplace. How do we meet it in a different way? Mm -hmm. So it has become a big topic um, for the work that uh, we do, and I'm sure you hear it er- almost every day as well. Yeah. Uh, and it is possible to work with it in different ways. Um, I think for me, just in a very practical way, I started to stop watching mm-hmm. all the pundits mm-hmm. who go off mm-hmm. on these mm-hmm. tangents. I just had to start um, being more conscious about who I was listening to and where I was getting information from, Um and uh, another thing I did was started to listen to the other side mm-hmm. instead of saying, I don't even want to hear this. It's outrageous to me. And, you know, how quickly my mind would get into its own righteousness. You know, how could they say that? You know, what is that about? Okay, well, I have to turn that down so I can listen a little more carefully. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everything I hear, but I have to at least hear what's going on. Um, without so much of the commentary. It's interesting. Well, one thing I've done is I've also uh, really changed my uh, news viewing habits. And I also have a young friend who, um, he's 20, uh, and for a while we had a pact that every day we were going to send one another a piece of good news. Mm. And it was like kind of burdensome finding it. You know, it was like, wait a minute. (laughs) I have to dig deeper. It's like, where's that? You know, and then um, there's something called like the Good News Network or something, which I let him have, you know, like, because mm-hmm. he was he was culling from there. So then I had to look even more widely afield, like, where am I going to find it? And then uh, he's he's very into um, turtles and tortoises and things like that. So I was getting a lot of good tortoise news, which apparently they're doing okay, <laughs> uh, you know. So, but really, I thought, what an exercise, you know, like, and look at how effortful this is. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. We're in a we're in a new place right now in our society, and and it's going to keep changing for a while. So, I think it's helpful to see what's going on with us individually and and make some conscious choices. I think it's that's a must have, and and it's not only in the news. Uh, it also applies to. I re, I remember um, I had a person at work who I had to work regularly with. And I generally, I really love to be with people. I I think it's fascinating, wonderful. And uh, so mostly I find 
a way to reach um, and connect with people, but not this person. <laughs> no matter what mm-hmm. I thought I could try, it, nothing worked. This person would just, you know, I'd, I'd see this person's name come up on my caller ID and I'd get tightness in my chest just from seeing the name, you know. It was that kind of thing. And um, and one day I decided enough is enough here. I, I have to find a different way of meeting mm-hmm. this being hooked. And so I actually you decided in my walk from my office to this person's office that with every step, and it probably was a six or seven minute walk, but with every step, I would offer this person kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came up with some some phrases, and with every step, I'd say a phrase. And as soon as my mind would go to, oh, this meeting's going to be terrible. Why is she so difficult? Blah, blah, blah. Nope. Back to, may she be happy. Right. That's nice. <laughs> and what was really fascinating, because this is an experiment for me. I had no idea if it would make any difference. And what was really fascinating to me was how when I arrived at the doorway, uh, instead of feeling defended and tight, which is how I would typically arrive at the doorway because the whole walk I'd be telling my story about how terrible this was going to be and why can't I, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was open. Mm-hmm. I just, just felt open. That's the only word that was in my head. And we had our meeting. I left the, the I was heading out the door, and she called and said, Janice, you know, that was a really great meeting. Mm. She had no idea what I did. There was no reason for her to know anything. Mm-hmm. The only thing that changed was how I arrived. Right. And, it, you know, it was that's something that we can do when we get hooked, whether it's by, you know, the news of the day or the people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic. So, well, that's why we're lucky to have one another is we share tools and, and experiences and experiments that we make, which brings me to the retreat we're going to do together uh, yes, I'm in so October. And I'm very excited, too, in Lenox, Massachusetts. Um, I don't have a description right in front of me. I don't know if you do. Uh, I, I do. Let's see. I think I have one right here. Um, but I can I can talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what we're going to um, be doing together, um, if you'd like. If yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Um, so this idea for this retreat has actually been years in the making um, because what happens when folks come on um, a, a basic retreat, whether it's an institute mindful leadership retreat or, or a retreat that you're teaching, oftentimes what, what I hear, and I'm sure you hear as, as well, is, well, where's the 2.0? You know, kind yeah, of, yeah. okay, that was really great. We don't want to do the same one again, but can we do, you know, can we keep going? Because in the retreats of mindful leadership will explore things like what do we really mean by leadership excellence? How do we mindfully communicate? What's a mindful meeting look like? How do I start seeing my ego's impact on my calendar? How do I start, you know, those kinds of things people go back, start doing, start exploring and, and experimenting and practicing. And then they're like, okay, let's keep going. I, I want to, you know, I want to keep going. And so for years they've been kind of, at me to to do another one, mm-hmm. and I was so honored when I asked you, and you said yes to say, okay, let's do this deepening the journey retreat. That's the name of it, deepening the journey, and it's meant for people who already know how to meditate. So you and I are not going to be doing mm-hmm. the basics of what is meditation. There, we're going to be building, and so it's for for anyone who has a meditation practice um, already, and we're going to be looking at things like how do we um, Look at, um, uh, sorry, I'm looking at the, I'm trying to read and talk. Sorry, we're going to have to edit a bit. So what will we be doing? (laughs) All right. So we're going to have a combination of periods of dialogue where we can talk about challenges of leading and living in today's world. We're going to be exploring meditation practices and stretches of silence. We're going to look at challenges like the ones we've been talking about today, like divisiveness and how do we work with divisiveness? How do we work with people who just hook us? We're going to look at that isolation of leadership that we also talked about in this podcast, kind of that sense of feeling alone and what is that like? And then we're also going to be looking at this idea of moral uncertainty, those moments of 
you know, where where are my principles? Where are my personal leadership principles? Not what someone's told me they should be, but what's at the core of who I am? And how does that impact my day-to-day world? And what happens when we're up against things that are not aligned with our own principles? How do we meet those, those moments, those times? And I hope that we're also going to have opportunities as, as a group and individually to really start looking at what, what about those win-win-wins? What about those conscious choices I can make that set those ripples in motion? The choices that are, yes, good for the organization, good for the employees, and good for the big picture. That's fantastic. It's so exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we will do a significant amount of practice, um, even though those uh, really, you know, initial uh, instructions won't be offered. But um, it's wonderful just to come together in these ways. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And thank you so much for, for being with us all today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And I I hope we have lots of listeners joining us on the retreat. Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) To learn more about this retreat, you can visit my website at SharonSalzberg.com slash events. And to learn more about Janice and her work, you can visit the website www.instituteformindfulleadership.org. I also encourage you to go out and get a copy of Finding the Space to Lead, which is available anywhere books are sold in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her teaching schedule, please visit her website at sharonsalzberg.com.